You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This is the world's best papaya, man. <laughs> GMO papaya, rainbow papaya, nothing better than this. This is the biggest environmental issue of my generation and my kids' generations. How are we going to feed the world without destroying the planet we depend on? Kauai had three growing seasons, so right off the bat they're using three times the amount of pesticides they might use in Iowa or someplace like that. The stuff they're growing here on 11,000 acres feeds no one. No one eats it at all. I live in the open air lab that tests food that goes on your dinner table. I'll say this on camera. I don't have a scientific issue with GMO. Frost resistant strawberries and drought resistant beans. Oh man, we grow more food and feed the world. Now, the whole GMO movement is about selling more of my chemicals, not using less. The industry is suing our government, saying no. It's not that our products are safe. It's that you don't have the power to force us to disclose to you what we're spraying. You want to believe that you're going to use these tools for good. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be trusted with this to change the society or to change the world. Food is a means of control, a means of power, but it's also provides a pathway for people to reclaim their power from a system. Hawaiian society invented entirely new ways of producing food. They were extraordinary agronomists. Right now there's a revolution of people rising up who want to grow their own food. He ali'i ka'aina, he kawake kanaka. So if we take care of this land, what will it do it for will us? It take care of us. Oh yeah, it'll take care of us. That's the trailer for the new film Island Earth. It's a documentary film by Cyrus Sutton. Cyrus Sutton is a former pro surfer whom you probably know. And um, Island Earth kind of marks his foray outside of surf filmmaking and into just filmmaking. It's a proper documentary film, not about surfing. It's actually about sustainable agriculture and the role of organics and small-scale farming in the global food supply, essentially, among other things. Um, Cyrus and I get into what the film is about kind of in detail in this conversation. And also, I refer to him as a pro surfer. I mean, we also kind of analyze what that even means today. It's an evolving definition you know what a pro surfer is and what your sponsors expect from you as a pro surfer and um, if even that's how cyrus identifies so interesting conversation super interesting guy i um wanted to shine a light on this film island earth and the importance of it and so i'm going to be hosting a screening of the film in long beach california if you're in southern california uh, we'd love to have you attend the screening is going to be held on May 15th at 7.30 p.m. at the United Artist Theater on Pacific Coast Highway in Long Beach. Tickets are $11. And 
They're only available in advance, and actually they need to be purchased by May 7th. Um, the organization that's organizing the ticket sales requires that they're all done in advance. So it will sell out, so don't delay. I held a screening about two years ago when this podcast was a lot smaller, and we sold that out as well. So two years later, much larger audience. This definitely will sell out. Make sure that you secure your tickets. You can do it on our website, Surf Splendor Podcast. Dot com, And if you're not in Southern California, Cyrus is hosting uh, a lot of screenings worldwide, actually. So hopefully there is one in your neighborhood. You can find that on Island Earth's website, which we have a link to on surfsplendorpodcast.com. So just come to our website. We'll link over to everything, whether you want to buy a ticket and go to our screening or just check it out with Cyrus. Um at any rate, I really enjoyed this conversation with Cyrus. He's a super interesting, smart, articulate guy who's, um, I think, really just at the beginning of a very long career as a filmmaker. So um, I'm excited to get into a lot of – I'm a big fan of film and surf film, documentary, Hollywood feature films, all that. So I'm really excited to kind of get into this conversation with Cyrus. We talk about not only filmmaking, not only professional surfing, but – um, working tirelessly on passion projects. You know, even if you follow Cyrus on Instagram, you see that he's lived in a van for the last 10 years of his life, which might actually lead you to believe that he's lazy and that he doesn't work. It's quite the contrary, actually. He works tirelessly. He works 60 plus hours a week and has always and produces a pretty prolific amount of content. Um, through Corduroy TV and his various other projects that he's involved in. So um, we talk about that. We talk about living in the van, downsizing, synthesizing, exploring, doing it on the cheap, all of it. So uh, really interesting conversation if I do say so myself. All right. Without further ado, this is David Scales. This is Surf Splendor. And this is my conversation with Cyrus Sutton. Yeah, um, Island Earth is a project that I started about three years ago, and um, it basically took me, you know, I, growing up I would, I'd go to Hawaii uh, to surf, and mostly, and um, I, it just felt like a pretty one-sided relationship, you know, you just go there and you see the coast, and and you pretty much in it interact with other people who are traveling and and you know some locals but it's it's more about getting good waves and I've, I've always been fascinated by hawaiian culture and this project really allowed me to see a totally different side of hawaii that i felt like it was an entirely different world and it's people who are you know um either going back to the land and are, are finding some kind of uh, connection uh, with the, the landscape there by growing food or you know traditional Hawaiian or indigenous Hawaiian people who are really involved in the sovereignty movement and who don't feel that the you know, U.S. government is valid and are basically looking at the current situation where they now import 80 to 90 percent of the food um, that they eat and they're they're taking steps to reinstate 
um, kind of sovereignty and self-reliance because uh, the islands used to sustain a very similar population to today but pre-colonialism pre, uh, and it was fed 100% on their local resources. So they have that model and they haven't been colonized for that long. You know, our ancestors have been colonized for thousands of years and you know, so many other places of the world have, have forgotten their history, their indigenous history and it's only been 150 years, you know, really that, that their culture has been kind of aggressively um, tried to be stamped out you know, by Western imperialist um, business forces. So mm-hmm. they have a lot to draw on, and it's pretty amazing to, just to be around people who have that close of a connection and ancestral ties to their land. So, yeah, it's, it's been a project about that. There's a quote uh, by a guy named Melvin Connor that really summed up the film for me and after going there, uh, I spent three or four months the first time um, to shoot kind of a preliminary research trip to see if you know the story would pan out, if it was worth devoting um, the amount of time that it's ended up taking. And there's this quote, and it says, um, "A fragile planet is a relatively new idea in human thought." For most of our existence, we have viewed nature as a powerful and dangerous force to overcome and subjugate to our will. And then along the course of making the film, um, Stanford professor Peter Vitusik, who studied a lot of Hawaiian culture, and he's also um, an ecologist, um, said in, in, in our interview that uh, small island societies basically were worlds onto themselves in the era before globalization because they could see what they were doing to their world. And very quickly, stewardship became um, this necessary to their survival so that for me you know in talking with a couple there's a a a gentleman by the name of Patrick Kirch who's a professor at UC Berkeley and those guys he and Vitusik work together but they've they've written some papers on this idea that island societies have a lot to offer globalized um our global interconnected world today in a sense that they could get a feedback loop on their actions and how it affected their surroundings and I think we've been sheltered from the results of our actions by um, this sort of um, manifest destiny this um, you know you can always there's a frontier culture that we're in you can there's always a new place to start over and you know as our societies become globalized we're realizing we're pushing up against the carrying capacity of the world and this is an island and it's never been more apparent so They've had to deal with that for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and, and applying some of their values um, to where we are today, I thought would be a really interesting, interesting uh, examination. And 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 the, the pressing issue now is the fact that you know the majority of the GMO seeds in the United States are developed in Hawaii because the chemical companies, it's basically six chemical companies, soon to be four, because two of them are merging, um, grow own about 90% of the world's seeds hmm. and they test their seeds. They like to test them in, in United States or United States um, territories and um, because we have worldwide we have really lax a uh, really lax regulatory system. A lot of other countries don't allow what we allow um, businesses to do to the land and they're looking for tropical places that they can get three corn growing seasons 
and then export the the results of those tests to the Iowas and the Ohio's for the the corn and soy and the and the commodity crops canola and cotton that that we um that we rely on for a lot of our foodstuffs and, and just raw materials. Mm. So a lot of the food that's being um, grown there, you were saying like eighty percent of food consumed in Hawaii is imported, but they're obviously growing a lot of food there too. Is it being exported or is it strictly for testing purposes? Well, at least 80% of the food that is consumed, 80 to 90% of the food that's consumed in Hawaii comes from boats elsewhere. Right. So they're growing almost no food for the people there. They're testing seeds, and then those seeds are then shipped to Iowa, and then the seeds are grown and create um, heavily um, processed foods that then can, you know, have a long shelf life, come back on the barges, and then that's what's consumed. Hmm. So people are looking at that, scratching their heads, going, that's a pretty big system. You know, it's a pretty long tail for it to get back to our plates. Can we just, our ancestors did this 150 years ago. We provided enough food and enough calories for a similar amount of people. Why can't we just go back there? And, um, yeah. Interesting. Um what do we need to know about the situation? I mean, at the risk of spoiling the film, like what did you discover through the process of filmmaking? And what do the, our listeners kind of need to know about that situation and how to get involved in the situation? Yeah, um, it's it's a complicated situation. Sure. Very complicated. Um, you know, GMO foods have been villainized for a really long time. Yeah. Um, uniformly. And I grew up, eating mostly organic and not really being afraid of GMOs and after making this film I feel that um, that it's it's not only unfair but it's just wrong to villainize GMO foods um, because GMO is a technology mm-hmm. it's like saying nuclear power is inherently bad or um, computers are evil you know I mean you can't you can't say that just a, a technology is evil. You can you can question um, our efficacy and their, our use of that and our foresight. And I'm deeply concerned about how GMOs are being used today. Um, the vast majority of GMO seeds are being used by these chemical companies so that they can spray their proprietary blend of, of chemicals and continue um, their model um, of making money, they hold up, they hold up, and they pay scientists to talk about um, the merits of golden rice and you know these different. You know, they've gotten around the GMO papaya, which is covered in the film, which was a a, a publicly funded study um, that a guy at the local university there developed in Cornell, but he's a local Hawaiian guy came up with to, to fight a disease, which oh. is which has nothing to do with spraying more pesticides. But the vast, vast majority of GMO seeds, and the reason they have a bad name, is because they're being used to alter seeds, alter plants, so that they can be sprayed with more chemicals and survive, while the other, while the other plants and weeds and... and um, Indigenous crop and... Right, they, they, they don't have that genetic modification, so they die off. So it keeps, you know, a lot of, I've learned a lot of, you know, pharmaceuticals, a lot of science is about patenting nature, patenting things that already exist in nature so that a profit can be made. And it's no different in agriculture. And, um, you know, I I think 
am I going to eat GMO foods after this? Like, no, because mm-hmm. I understand that the majority of them are are made to withstand more pesticides, and pesticides have been well proven. It's not really disputed that they are dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, Roundup is being shown as carcinogenic and cancer-causing. Um, I mean, you know, almost all pesticides were safe until they were proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you just have to look back through history. I mean, you look at the DDT is good for me advertisements. Right. Anybody can Google that and see these cartoon characters with kids and and animals and you know it's we know that that's bad now and so i don't know like i i will forever question our as a society's use of nuclear technology and i'll forever question our our use of gmo but i will never villainize the technology itself after this well i haven't seen the film yet um but just watching the trailer i did not feel like it was villainized at all and you know that you're right though the even the letters gmo are so polarizing you say it and people automatically want to jump on the bandwagon and start shaming um and i don't feel like the trailer you know did that at all i felt like it was actually just kind of a objective assessment of the situation but i also and i'm not sure even how what my thoughts are about it although i do know that they have a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of clout. And so you have to keep that in check when, you know, an organization or a corporation has that much um, that much power and they can influence legislation and that sort of thing. That's where you have to kind of keep things in check. And so I and I don't know if that was discussed in the film at all, but, you know, that that would be a concern, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and I think that, you know. That's the state of our entire government right mm-hmm. now, and it's yeah, exactly. It's troubling. Yeah. Um, what's your role in the film? I know, obviously, it's your project, and you directed. Does that mean you're actually operating a camera? It was obviously your concept, but what's your involvement? Yeah, I shot it. Oh, you yeah. did. Uh, okay. I shot the whole thing. I mean, I maybe I licensed a couple clips that I couldn't get, and I had some friends contribute some footage. Okay. Um, but yeah, the vast majority I shot, and then I edited a good portion of it. Um, I hired an amazing editor um, named Asako Ushio. It's a, it's a Japanese woman, a uh, rock climber from from uh, Los Angeles. She's won a couple Emmys hmm. for her work in PBS. She's a really great storyteller. She helped me wrangle the really complex narrative um, that the film became. Yeah. And then I was able to kind of put the finishing touches on this last summer, and so yeah, I've had a lot of help. It's what's not just me. It's, what's it shot on? Um, it's shot on a red camera and Sony's. Um, okay. So yeah, you're obviously in the midst of screening it now, and um, you've broken away kind of from the surf traditional surf film mold with this film. This isn't a surf film; it's a documentary, and it has application and interest obviously beyond our little surf sphere. Um, tell me about that transition and that experience. Yeah. I, um, I've wanted to do I've always tried t- to like tell stories you know yeah. um, in a lot of my films and I've, I've stuck with my niche of surfing for a long time but um, it just felt right to you know Hawaiian culture is arguably the culture that gave birth to our modern surf culture you know they, they're the ones that our concepts of surfing come from Hawaii of, of what we think surfing is and 
they were able to surf and spend that much time and be creative in the waves and play because they had their basic systems of living so dialed. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, you know, you, you could say a lot about, you can you can romanticize Hawaiian, ancient Hawaiian society. It wasn't all perfect. You know, there was there was uh, forced labor. There, everybody worked the land. It was hard work. But they came up with incredible things like surfing, and that was because they could feed their population and have a season where you a lot of the people could play, you know, and, yeah. and you could you could enjoy the ocean. And if we're heading in in a culture now that, that looks like that we're depleting our natural capital and we're allowing corporations to deplete our natural capital to the point where, you know, if we continue on this trend, I don't know. There, were, there wasn't a lot of cultures that had time, if you look historically, to just, to just play. Right. A lot of people were really, you know, involved in day-to-day survival. Totally. And so I wanted, you know, I thought, I think surfing in general is like the cherry whipped cream on the top of an ice cream sundae of life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like amazing luxury we have. And we have that luxury by oftentimes colonizing, displacing native people from their land and extracting resources that have taken a long time to um, develop and, and for our planet to develop. And if we cycle through that and we burn through that, you know, there's not going to be that. So I just felt like returning to the values that have created this thing that has given me so much surfing, uh, that's where it ties in for me. That's mm-hmm. right. I just kind of, I guess that's a little abstract. but No, um, it seems like a logical transition. What's the experience been like in, during the screening process? Obviously, it's a different audience, I would assume, than surfers. Yeah, it has been. I mean, um, I'm not like a well-known documentary filmmaker yeah. mainstream so I've pl- I've chosen you know screening in Hawaii you're going to get a lot of surfers it's been a mix okay. of surfers and farmers and mothers and local activists at the screenings and I was nervous when I started it yeah. um, I started in Hawaii and toured it across the islands and then went to Australia and I'm now on a 27 stop tour from San Diego to Canada on the west coast and um, you know screening it in Hawaii was nerve-wracking i'm not hawaiian mm-hmm. um and i'm not a scientist and i'm not you know a doctor so um i was i was i was concerned i was concerned i was going to be an- able to answer the questions right and um i was concerned i mean i this film isn't me this is the product of people who are very well educated um as researchers i was able to hire them through money we'd raised in Kickstarter and um, great editors and a ton of advisors. So this is a product of a of a village, not just me. So I felt confident about the film, but it's been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, there's yeah. been there's been no real negative response. People leave inspired and charged up, and the questions have been great. I've I've been surprised at my ability to to answer them. Um, so yeah, it's been. It's been good. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. What um, are you interested in film in general, just as a medium? Are you a big fan of film and documentary? And yeah, who do you admire as a filmmaker? Or are there any like recent films or documentaries that you've been a big fan of? Yeah, yeah, documentaries. Um, let's see. You know, Kid stays in the picture. The graphics that were in that. Um, I've been loving. Who, who is it? Who is that about again? 
Um, it was about the Hollywood dude. I yeah. Think of his name. Yeah. It's a producer, right? Yeah. Um, Robert? Robert something. Yeah. I'll put it in the notes at the end of the show. I totally I, – I remember seeing it. I just can't recall. Yeah. Yeah. Man on Wire was great. Totally. Did you see that? that was, totally. That was amazing. I mean, I love documentary film. I like um, – I'm a – I like watching films, but I don't really – I'm not like a film buff, you know, like I'm, I'm more obsessed with storytelling. I like to read. Um, I grew up going to creative writing camps and, and just came at it from more of like a writing perspective. And then I found, um, photography in high school and, um, saw that film was a great way to marry storytelling in a visual way and engaging Mm -hmm. way. And, um, I really love like I just took the the Werner Werner Herzog. Um, they have these like master classes. Have you heard of those? No. There's this, this, this website where you can kind of take these multi um, chapter courses with different people who excel in their field. And um, I just took his, and you know he's a great storyteller. He's got his little thing. He's his his methodology down and. Grizz, Grizzly Man, right? Was that yeah. one of his docs? <laughs> that was great. And it was so wild. Errol Morris, all Errol Morris's documentaries are amazing. Yeah. Um, Fog of War. Yeah, so... It seems like we're really in this golden age of documentary. Like, when I was young, I didn't even know where to watch documentaries. They weren't... Didn't seem like they were in the theaters. Maybe on HBO or something I'd see one but now with streaming services like netflix it's like yeah they're all over the place it's like there's a better platform now i think for showcasing them you know yeah i think documentaries are, are good people want reality you know and um i think there's a lot of pitfalls with documentaries i think there's a lot of there's a lot of potential to be um preachy or to be misinformed mm-hmm. and be misinforming with the medium um so it, yeah i think it's um it's a tricky one you know documentaries are a lot of people derive their kind of version of reality from um what they see on netflix totally i I think that that's they watch one documentary and then they think they're an expert on the situation yeah or that they really trust that the documentary has is is telling them good information so or that it's unbiased even you know so many documentary films are unbiased are are, are so biased super biased yeah and that was something I really entered in. You know, I tried to check my biases at the door. And there's there's a well-known documentary editor that I talked to um, during the making of the film who really advised me. He said, you know, documentary films are a they're, – they're basically research, structured research. And the best documentaries have – and he, he's worked on The Cove and, and – um, and, uh, the racing extinction films and um he says good documentaries are are have a spirit of curiosity and not um they're not didactic they're not preachy they're not trying to tell you a certain thing and um yeah like louis thoreau you know i love i don't know if you watch any no. of his stuff but they, I, I i try to do that in in island earth and i want to do more like like that like like this last film and and I just I love the fact that you know I didn't I didn't get to spend a lot of time in college my whole family's professors but I I went right to 
surfing mm-hmm. and traveling and making films. My first film was pretty successful when I was 19, and that got me working right away. And um, going back to college made le- less and less sense. So I feel like documentary films are this way to basically, if you can pick your major, and because you have a camera, you can you can talk to incredible people and learn a lot. So I just want to keep learning and and sharing what I find, you know. I'm curious about the film, the business of filmmaking nowadays. Mm. Um, when you decided to make Island Earth, do you seek financing? I know you mentioned Kickstarter. Is that 100% responsible for the financing? And if, I mean, do you shoot? You said you went there for a few months in advance. Do you kind of use that to make a sizzle reel to get that financing? How does, what's the business like? The yeah. Business side? I mean, I've been incredibly fortunate to, to be supported by Reef. Um, and they kind of as a as a surfing ambassador of theirs um artist um and they gave me the seed money to do that first trip that i was able to get a long trailer to to do the kickstarter so you present the idea to reef in advance and they either approve it or not yeah yeah the creative director at the time um mark tessie um He's a really good friend. He, he used to work at Roxy before Reef and Virgin before that in New York. And he just kind of always thought outside the box. And it's not typical that Reef would fund a, t- a movie like this that sure. has nothing to do really with surfing. Um, but they he just believed in whatever I was passionate about. And and um, Jeff Moore, who is the president of Reef, has always really believed in me and stood behind it, the decision as well. And, and I was just able to... You know, I'm uh, making documentary films. They, there's there's no money in them really. They're calling cards for people usually in LA to like get commercial work and do other okay. things. Um, you can you can sell them to TV and make a decent amount of money back, but um, it's a pretty it's much pretty much a passion deal. Hmm. And I wouldn't have been able to do it um, if I hadn't had their support to seed and then everybody's support on the Kickstarter. Right. And um, and I worked three jobs, so I was able to fund the, the last bit um, myself. Worked three jobs, mm-hmm. like in editing and filmmaking? or Yeah, I mean, I do freelance stuff. I have a startup sunblock company called Monda, some reef-safe, organic sunblock. Um, I, I While making the film, I did a series of filmmaking and photography tutorials for the website Adorama, which is similar to B&H. They sell a lot of audiovisual equipment in New York. Um, and then I'm now head of head of media at Guayaquil or Bamate. Oh, okay. So they they've seen the organic energy, you know, the rise of people interested in organics, um, and they've kind of become the de facto alternative to Monster and Red Bull for people who want, you know, a responsibly sourced um, organic pick me up. And so they've they have enough money now that they have marketing budgets, and they've hired me on to basically develop content for them and cool. the look and feel of their website and what they're doing very cool which is a full-time job so and i ride for reef i was gonna say let's i want to talk more about reef um obviously they're being they've been supportive of your endeavors what do they expect of you you know and then if they're giving you the green light on that film project do they have any oversight in the film well that's what was so great about it is they didn't you know, and they were just really, you know, wanting to support me and wanting to support my vision and, you know, happy to 
Um, I think I think when the film turned and seemed like it could be controversial, they were concerned. You know, in the middle of the of the, of the production. I mean, I wasn't sure what direction it would take. I didn't have a script. Yeah. Um, but they thought, you know, if it got too controversial, maybe we wouldn't want our name on it. Mm. Um, but at the end, they saw it and they thought it was pretty balanced, and they were all really pleased with the production quality and the story. And um, so I have their logo on at the end. There isn't really, along with Adorama and Red Camera, um, who helped, you know. Um, I always see that people advertise the Red Camera at the end of the film. Um, is Red you know, loaning their camera out for the project? Like, why give them uh, thanks at the end if... Yeah, that's basically what it is. Um, Shea Perkins um, at Reef used to work at Oakley. Yeah. And Red is the the brainchild of the founder of Oakley. Right. So um, that's how that that came to be. Got it. Um, The film looks so professional. I mean... The uh, it just looks good, you know, in the post production and all that. Um, I'm uh, back to kind of a, the business of filmmaking. When you're working on something like this, is there a distribution plan in place, in place prior, prior to, production, to production, or is that or something you figure, figure out, out at the end, end of the process? process? Obviously, with this much investment, you would want to have something in place to hopefully see a return. Yeah, there's been various times in my life where I've just w- gone for it. Yeah. And I felt like everything that I've been able to do afterwards, kind of the business model of my life is like get really inspired about something and put it all on the line without any plan in place and knock myself out um, and and ask my friends for help. I'm really fortunate to have really great supportive friends and, and to create something that just doesn't make sense. You know, for financially or business-wise, and then in the past, it's just proven to open up opportunities that are on more on my terms and work with companies. Then it's tended to result in companies wanting to work with me instead of me having to submit my resume. There's nobody I work with that I've ever approached. Everybody I've worked with has come to me mm-hmm. um, because I've just kind of not been afraid to risk it all and, and this 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 project is definitely one of those things i mean it's it's kind of dumb i mean i don't think they would teach to do this in business school sure. um but yeah i just i just i know what it takes to make something professional and i know that you can do it really easily if you have the money and you hire specialists for each one or i can you know like films before i've taught myself how to animate or yeah you can read anything online sure you know, and, and 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 the tools production are so cheap now it just takes the time and and I've been incredibly fortunate to be supported by reef and and these different companies and they they I work a lot I work a um, a disheartening sometimes amount um, to get it all done but at the end like yeah I just want I want to live a life on my own terms and I and I'm willing to do what it takes in this film like I think I think is that well, you've referenced um, a couple of times Stoked and Broke, right? Was that yeah. the first film? or No, no. Stoked and Broke came um, almost eight years after, I think, my first film. What was the first one? Uh, called Riding Waves. Okay, that's right. That's right. Um, I think you've, you've come along at a time where, you know, the technology is available, like you said, and 
you can shoot on inexpensive cameras and learn how to edit on the internet and all that sort of stuff. And it's really democratized um, the filmmaking process. There's fewer barriers of entry. But I think more than anything, it's actually just allows you a platform to get your work out there, you know, rather than needing a distribution deal or something like that because you could just put it on the internet. Um, But even those early films looked beautiful, you know, and they had like post-production, they had quality like post-production in them. Do you remember like Stoked and Broke, for example, is the one I'm thinking of that looked really clean and like you said, cool animation and stuff like that. Do you remember what the budget was or what that full project cost you to make? Uh, It was so, so little. Yeah. And I just have had... It was like I started this this website called Quarteroy TV. Yeah, we'll talk about that for sure. And that just allowed me to give my artist friends a platform for their work. And okay. then I could like always call in the favor yeah, and ask them to do something for me and at a cheaper rate. And that's kind of what Stoked and Broke was. And that's what a lot of you know getting the word out was just been creating a platform to help them and then creating that like grassroots ecosystem yeah i mean i think the reason why my stuff i've always tried i think technology is interesting like you can spend a lot of money on a camera Mm -hmm. and it's gonna get you you got to know how to shoot right like number one and it's gonna get you better images more consistently but you can if you nail the exposure on a cheap camera and you nail your settings and you know after feedback of shooting so many hours, you know what light certain cameras can capture well, and you don't push them to areas in which expose their weaknesses, you can get a great image out of a cheap camera. If you know how to edit to accentuate what that camera already has, and then you know how to combine a story with that to take your eye away from... I look at Stoked and Broke and I see a bunch of flaws, but maybe you were so wrapped up in the story, or other people, I developed a story that you didn't take note of that, and I think there's so many ways to hide that it just takes, you know, I, I shot, I don't know how many tens of thousands of feet, a hundred thousand feet of 16 millimeter film. I had to learn, you know, without using a light meter, exactly what the exposure is at any time. I had to learn the basics of filmmaking that I think it just takes so long that those things, I mean, I've been doing this since I was 19, pretty much full time. I'm 34 now. So I think I may be able to, to squeeze less, you know, out of, uh, or more out of less, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about Corduroy TV. Um, You started Corduroy. What was your ambition with Corduroy? (laughs) Corduroy was just a way to, I just didn't feel like there was a platform at the time for, there's all these people who are inspired by surfing and, and, really artistic and they were blogs were taking off you know Mm -hmm. like you could have a blog and and i just remembering i just remembered like all these individual artists having their own blogs and going to their blogs and seeing you know what their interpretations of surfing was or what they were writing or um it was like the beginning of this um it wasn't the beginning i mean litmus arguably was the beginning of of andrew kidsman andrew kidman's litmus was like this beginning of and Derek Hine introducing the fish and other alternative boards and and what Joel Tudor did in the late 80s and early 90s. Nat Young really bringing back, Donald Takayama bringing back the longboard. I mean, that, those were the 
the early stages of opening people's minds of what you could ride. But anyway, so there's this like landscape of all these individual people and I had just made a film called Under the Sun, which I spent three years and knocked myself out and that film never really took off because um, the producers, I can talk about this now, producers got a divorce right when we were trying to release it and so we couldn't release it. Um, so that was kind of like a heartbreak thing. And was I re- it ever released? Yeah, but it just never. After. I mean, all the media I got yeah. lined up just kind of never happened. And um, it's online now. Are you happy with the film? Yeah, I'm really happy with it. It was like it took three years. Yeah. Stoke and Brook took four months. This took three years. Right. So it was about Australia and the commodification of surfing as told through these two coastal towns, Byron Bay and the Gold Coast. And the creation of like the free surfer archetype and the contest surfer archetype. Interesting. Um, I'd love to see that. I haven't seen it. It's on the Surf Network. I think okay. that's where it is. I don't know if it's on iTunes. I'll check it out. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, but anyway, so I just came off that. That was kind of a buzzkill, and I was broke and able to live in San Diego um, at the oldest house in, in North County at the Derby House. And um, it was this really cool. It built in 1887. and I don't know anything about it. It's right across the street from what used to be Whole Foods and kind of the La Paloma. Okay. right near the train tracks and it was just this really creative place that the owner owners Garth M- Murphy and Uva Anderson um, Garth was kind of like the for- an intelligent Forrest Gump of, okay. of surfing like he, he started wax research with um, Rusty Miller and Tom Mori in the 60s wow. and, in Encinitas and then they all you know Rusty moved to Australia Garth moved to Australia he then was basically a part of the shortboard revolution with Nat Young and and I mean basically now like they're 
there'll be Jack McCoy stays there, Dave Rostovich stays there, um, Pat Curran stays there from Idaho, and um, uh, Jerry Lopez and um, Nat Young. I mean, all these people just come through the doors, and Derek Hind, and so it's just like amazing historical. John Peck is who introduced me, the bearded, old bearded yeah. John Peck, um, introduced me to Garth, and I was like 19, and or Uva first, and they allow me to stay there for free. Wow. And just kind of caretake this old mansion and for eight years, pretty much. Wow. <laughs> so that's why I lived in Encinitas, and I, I, that was the era of creating Corduroy, and I basically just did took out Craigslist ads for people um, in the local area and kind of got people excited a lot of them came to the premiere of under the sun and were impressed with that and and just said yeah let's make this we don't i I had no business plan and i was just like let's just make this community and we'll figure out a way to like turn it into something that could make money or you know i had no idea yeah and uh it ended up has never made really money it hasn't no okay it's just been this way of giving people a voice that you know, now I think surf culture is already in that. It's totally changed, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much in the DIY and yeah and creative board thing. But back then, there wasn't a lot of that. So, yeah, it was a fun time. You were saying you were setting up that um, corduroy by saying that there were all these blogs that existed where people were kind of doing their own thing and expressing their themselves. Were you going to say that corduroy, you wanted corduroy to be a platform for all that stuff to live in one place, basically? Or yeah, or just curate that or have those people, you know, ask those people to, to contribute a blog post. And, yeah. And then I, you know, I was so passionate about making videos and the DSLR camera came out right right at the time. Well, it was actually a few months after Corduroy launched. Okay. And Jack McCoy had loaned me a camera because he was working on this film, A Deeper Shade of Blue. And he wanted my girlfriend at the time to be in it. So he gave me his camera to shoot her her section in it. And I used the camera to shoot a bunch of the first corduroy uh, okay. episodes, and then the DSLR came out, the Canon Rebel, and the and the uh, whatever the 5D and the 7D, and I would go, we'd go to Costco, and Costco had a three month return policy. No, way. so we totally abused that for the first like three. We did it three times, and then I felt super bad. I, I was making I made enough money to by doing editing gigs in LA to like buy our first production camera but yeah definitely that's hilarious thanks costco sponsored by costco yeah (laughs) do you feel like you fulfilled that ambition that you had with corduroy yeah you know i i it's not done i talk about in the past tense but it's not really done i mean I i feel like it could still do something i just i can't ask my friends to do things for free anymore right as I've bought in a house and I've, I've ended up, things are starting to work out for me financially. So I'm not much of a business guy. I mean, in terms of, I have good, I have ideas and I have friends now who love to do the whole business side of things. But, um, you know, I, I've just been so busy, yeah. so busy with all these other jobs and it's, they're working with great people and it's great money. And, and my passion has been Island earth and getting beyond just the surf thing. I mean, I, I still surf, but it's not, I would not. I don't geek out on it like I used to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, eventually, you know, I, I'd love to open it up to to a handful of friends who are still really passionate about that stuff and just keep it going. Or um, I've had a couple people who've wanted to turn into some kind of business, and I, I'd rather keep it grassroots. But whatever it takes to sustain it, I'm into. And um, or maybe it'll just 
fall by the wayside. I don't know. I have no idea. Hmm. Um, what? Uh, I'm curious about like how you organize your life now in regard to trips and surf trips. Like you said, your maybe your passion or like your I don't know childish passion of surfing has waned, where it's not all surfing all the time. You actually made a video, um, maybe it was last year, called A Big Backyard. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Actually, it inspired me to spend time in the American Southwest. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it was as short as a three-minute piece. And um, you can talk about, tell listeners what it was about. But basically, since then, I've gone to Zion, Bryce. Oh, I was no in way. Sedona last month. Cool. Because it's like... I felt the same way as you, where I was so ocean-centric and focused all the time, where it needed to be about surfing, and then you realize, as it is in the title, this is in our backyard, like all this stuff. People come from around the world to see Zion. We could drive there in a day, you know? Yeah. So do you want to talk about that project or just tell people what it was about? Or yeah, yeah. Really? It was the second of two clips. I did one called Friends in High Places. Hmm. Um, Missed it. That was like a year before that. Okay. And um, it had a little surfing, but it was more just going up the coast to where I live now. And that was kind of, for me, discovering where I wanted to live and where I live now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, springtime, the waves aren't always that great. And that's usually the best time in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the, um, the cottonwoods are blooming and um, you got moderate temperatures and uh, everything's green and I've just had a lot of fun getting out there and I mean we just we live in the more I've traveled in the world I just we live in such a beautiful country seriously I mean this is like Australia's great and Australia's beautiful people are beautiful beaches are beautiful but like the land doesn't hold you know, I'm probably going to make some enemies and I just my personal opinion is like America is incredible and mm-hmm. and so diverse too yeah and there's so many interesting bioregions and yeah like you said diverse and so yeah I don't know I was on a plane like 10 years ago in Asia and it was empty and like um, the male flight attendant came up to me and he's like hey you're from America right and I'm like yeah he's like I'm taking my family it was in Singapore air and he's like I'm taking my family to America next year we've been planning this trip forever and I want to know like prioritize what national park should I go to? Um, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and I think he said Kings Canyon or something. Like, what should I go to? And I looked at him. I had no idea what the right <laughs> answer was. And I'm literally on the other side of the planet, and I don't know, like, what's in my own backyard, you know? So I, I just was like, uh, Yosemite, just assuming that was the right answer, which in hindsight it might have been. But, like... I was embarrassed by that. And so since then, I've kind of taken that same approach where it's like, dude, Yosemite's literally a five-hour drive from my doorstep. You know, like, why am I not going there all the time? And it's incredible. Yeah. So um, yeah. in regard, though, to how you organize your life now with trips, like, do you take dedicated surf trips any longer? And if you do, how infrequently or frequently? Yeah, last few years making Island Earth, it's been real infrequent. Okay. Uh, I've done just enough to to not get fired from Reef. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, but this year, now that the film's done, you know, I, I've, I've been able to just stack. You know, like this last tour, I toured it in Hawaii and Australia. Okay. You know, and got great waves. You know, the whole time, and 
Um, I try to just surf where I can. I've had gotten great waves in California so far, and um, I went on a trip to Russia. Went back there last year. I was going to ask you about that trip because I um, I remember seeing it kind of pop up a couple of different times. I think it had a life on Surfer originally, and then popped up again maybe on Outside or something. Yeah. Well, originally I went. I was invited by Keith Moy to go on a trip to Kamchatka, Russia, which is just a stone's throw from Alaska. Okay. Um, Eastern Russia, north of Japan, and Chris Burkhart uh, and Ben Weiland led the trip, and we went and. It was a wild trip, um, and um, I still have nerve damage in my toes from trying to surf without booties. From um, the cold. Yeah, well, we we got the we got some kind of intel that the water was in the mid fifties, low to mid fifties, and I think it was thirty eight. Oh, because there was like stiff offshore winds. It was like there, you know, fall September, um, and the coat, you know, the upwelling. So I didn't pack like sufficient booties and all that but um it was it was a good trip it was it was really you know we didn't get many waves and we we flew in it's incredibly expensive it's like ridiculously expensive because there's no infrastructure okay um this place kamchatka is like it's on the game of you know risk you ever play the board game risk it's like a military it's where it's where the russians um housed their nuclear sub program Okay. In the Cold War, and uh, I think the Hunt for the Red October, Sean Connery's from Kamchatka or something. Got it. But uh, it was totally this just military base that just got opened up to the public like fifteen or twenty years ago, and so there's like live scale, life scale tank statues, <laughs> like mounted tanks on in the in the town squares, and huge statues of of um, of revolutionaries and Lenin and stuff like that. It, it's it's a it's a trippy place, and um, so you can't really go anywhere other than the town. Um, and they have these like ex-Soviet cop, you know, uh, helicopters that you can charter, but they go down all the time because really? they're so like they're just decrepit, you know. And Whoa. and so the pilots will make a, a ton of money and just knock on wood every time they touch ground touch the ground I mean, we actually watched our guide at that trip like kiss the ground when we got down oh my god and um and they'll fly you just along this like pristine coastline which is really attracts like trophy hunters and fly fishermen who want these crazy you know they, they have rainbow trout and brown trout like all kinds of trout um these crazy fly fishing experiences and then uh, you know, with Chris Burkhardt, he's such a, like an adventurer. We tried to find these new waves, and we, we, we flew into this bay that was like turquoise-colored river with teeming with silver salmon um, flowing out to this perfect left sandbar, and you could just see like six-inch waves. It looked like macaronis or something in the mentwise, just bending around this like little sandbar. And there was a guy there with a wolf wolf dog, and, and he was really friendly and he felt kind of lonely. And he, I guess he could get in and out on a snowcat in the winter because the, the, the snow would blanket the the taiga kind of forest area. I don't know if that's the taiga, but it's the, the prime, primeval forest. Um, he could get out and get back to town. But in the summers, he was there, and he was, his function was to protect the river mouth from poachers because... It's really hard to make a living in Russia, and you get a lot of guys you know served in the military, and then there's kind of no. It's pretty destitute. It's pretty grim in the cities, 
And so poaching, you know, you can go to one of these many river mouths in the middle of nowhere and and they organize boats and you can do caviar and, and just get, you know, a good amount of money and stock it up for your family and, and you know, buy nice things and buy good food. And so he was there to protect and there was no poachers there. And so I wanted to, to schedule, you know, I've always dreamed about going back and just doing a trip on this old man and his dog and, you know, fish for our food and, and just surf these perfect waves and, and, uh, it was kind of like my Hail Mary, you know, Don Quixote quest for perfect waves and discovering, you know, surfing away for you for, for the first time. And I just, it was very romantic. And, um, you know, Reef, I didn't do anything that year because I was, and I have a, I had a travel budget with Reef that set aside a certain amount of money for me to travel. And so I pissed it to them and, and Scott over the journal, uh, Surfer's Journal was always, and just, Hey, you know, pitch me an article and let's do something. And so I was like, okay, this is this is gonna be awesome. And I pitched them, I pitched Reef, and um, I brought my girlfriend along at the time and Dylan Gordon, and we flew in and and rushed at Kamchatka's first surfer who we met on the first trip. It was this really stoked young guy who learned to surf by watching it in God's hands. Oh my gosh! Shane Dorian. <laughs> yeah, and then like found is like like it was introduced to the whole idea, and then like. YouTubed a bunch of Taylor Steele videos okay. and, and learned about the culture. And, um, so it was this like Molly crew of us in this, in this military, ex-military surplus uh, helicopter. We get dropped in and the guy's not there. The old guy with the dog. There's, after the plane took off, we see this like full camp of poachers oh. on the river and they like sped in their motorboats. They thought we were military or police or something and so it just ended up like the swell died relatively quickly there was a hundred sea lions in the in the river um the river mouth where the waves were breaking it was it was good but it kind of had this like really shallow end section that would just like be on dry sand so the waves didn't really do it um and we had the choice of staying another like week and waiting for the next swell but i mean these guys they were nice guys, you know, and I understand why they were doing what they're doing and they, they were cool, but it was just like, they hadn't seen a woman. It was the end of their season. They'd been out there for three months. These guys, you know, were all ex-military looking and, and they were, you know, they were cool, but it just, I, it just came down to like, would it be responsible for me to push, you know, having my girlfriend there, like a 25 year old blonde, um, with, we have no guns or we have, we don't have anything. We're just like goofy surfers. And they kind of looked at us like, these guys are just rich, trust fund, weirdo, like surfer guys. You know? For like, sure. You have no clue what you're doing. And it was infested with bears, you know, where we were and mosquitoes. And, um, it just, it got to the point where it would have been, I felt really selfish and, um, yeah, just really selfish and, and reckless. To, to push our envelope and push their goodwill mm-hmm. because who knows somebody gets super drunk on vodka one night and comes yeah. over and starts something or you know anything can happen out there it's the wild west totally so that ended up being a, a, a bit of a I mean that was probably the most intense trip I've ever taken uh, interesting we ended up getting great waves went back to the beach break that we surfed right outside of the main uh, city that we'd surfed in the first film with Chris um, and Keith for the surfer magazine trip and 
<clears throat> went, and, <clears throat> went and explored volcanoes and and hiked around and met really great people and went to hot springs and it ended up being awesome. But how yeah. long was your total stay there? It was two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> um, are there any travel destinations, surf or otherwise, that are on your hit list? Like, what's the top of your hit list that you haven't yet been to? I'm really excited. I, I, it's not so much about where, it's about how for me. Like now, I, 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 I've spread myself so thin for so long that I know I can surf. I can, I can surf better when I have more time to kind of integrate into a place and find my feet and get into a routine. And so, and I can just enjoy it. I mean, I've, I've gone on a lot of surf trips and a lot of trips in general where I'm just, I'm packing so much in that I have a hard time enjoying it just because I'm so busy. And it's not, it, it's for no other reason than I'm just burnt. Mm-hmm. And I really would love to do trips where it's at least a month or two. Okay. And maybe buying a van and, you know, just taking time and meeting people, meeting locals and, and being there for the swells, but not trying to, um, I have, I also have an issue with where I live. I live in the Northwest, you know, there's no pro surfers up there. And where do you live? I live in Washington state, east oh, of okay. Portland on the border between Washington and Oregon. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. And for it, how long? Uh, I bought my house a year and a half ago. I've been there for a little over a year. Okay. But, um, you know, just the more mature, the older I get, I realize that surf culture you know it's it's a lot about marketing virgin places and and while while cultures while while there's not a lot of people that may surf there it's like a welcome thing like oh bring tourism oh bring there's new people to surf with but so much of the world surfs now that you're not really looked at as somebody who's bringing something you're more looking you're more looked at as somebody who's exploiting a place Mm -hmm. and i don't want to do that like i I don't really, I have enough other things going on that I don't need to be that guy for people. Like I, I like to surf, you know, but I don't need to be, I don't need the glory and I, I don't need, I don't want the fallout. I don't want surfers being bummed at me. I'd rather just not do it. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to do something, I want it to be slower. I want it to be in a place where people generally don't mind. There's a population so little that they don't mind. And I want to show their, them, you know, if I'm going to be making a video, I want it to be about them, you know, and maybe I have some waves in there and stuff, but, um, I want it to feel like a con- contribution when I travel, not taking, and that's kind of what the you know Island earth again for yeah. Hawaii for me, was like, it takes so much time and energy to make videos and to do all this stuff, um, that I don't want to be bumming people out or make it feel like it's a a glory quest for me, you know? You touched on it a little bit, but I'm just curious what your current relationship like is with current relationship with surfing is like, you know, I think as we get older, um, I think I'm just a year older than you, but our lives become more diverse and less surf centric. And it's like, I'm gratified by a lot of other things other than surfing. And so I just start doing those things. So I'm curious, what is your current surf relationship like? Uh, look, I love surfing. I mean, it's so fun. Um, and I'm really about having fun. And I'm really about enjoying 
being in the water, and I find that if I'm surfing a ton, um, it becomes more about being good. It does, yeah. And then it becomes less fun. Mm-hmm. And I have so many other things that I'm passionate about that, like, what's the point? Other than my, to feed my ego of, oh, I'm better than this guy, or, oh, I, can, I still got it, or, oh, I'm not a kook, or being afraid of being called a kook, or whatever. And I think I grew, I think a lot of us grew up, me personally, like, I was an only child. My parents were artists in Orange County. I didn't have a brother, or I, I wasn't Christian. I didn't, I mean, there was, like, a lot of things that was a shade darker than a lot of other kids. I didn't really know. My dad was adopted, so I don't. I didn't belong to any kind of ethnic ethnic group. And um, surfing for me was like a hall pass into being accepted and being good. And you know, winning contests or you know, getting in a magazine was like a way in Orange County for me to be um, just kind of a rite of passage, right? To just to get some kind of acceptance. And I think I think surfing is that way. Is that for a lot of kids? And you know, we want there's the base level of we appreciate the ocean and we appreciate and we're grateful for being out in the water but I think it gets taken to the levels of performance that we see now with a lot of those things proving something and and wanting and I was wanted to prove that I was um, was likable or relatable or something you know And, and as I've gotten older I mean I've gotten that you know I feel like I'm accepted I feel like I'm happy with what I've done so far in my life and I I'm a good friend and a good, good son and a you know good, a good person to, to the, my community and and so it's more about staying stoked and 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 I know the basics you know I'm I'm not the best surfer um, I I think I came I my window looking back I never I was obsessed with being a pro surfer when I was in my teens you know like Joel Tudor was my idol I made mixtapes I went to Radio Shack and got these chords to like plug in my own soundtrack and, and and edited all of his sections out of all these movies and you know Rob Machado and these guys that I ended up making a film about and writing waves when I was 19 and um, and then you know I went into film like I at 19 I, I was started I was I was sponsored I, I had my trips at least trips paid for anywhere in the world and I got a staph infection and I couldn't surf for like a, almost a year. It was really bad. A piece of coral embedded itself in my foot and kept infecting me, and the doctors didn't know why. And where'd that happen? Uh, Samoa. Okay. I hit the reef there, and um, but yeah, you know, I was I was doing well in contests, and then I just found filmmaking was just I I, I thought I was I was okay at surfing, but it was like a a, a calculated thing. Like I wanted to be good, and yeah. filmmaking I just found that like and storytelling like. I felt like it was it just came easier, and so I went into that world, and and then I did corduroy, and I put myself in Stoked and Broke because I learned that when you put yourself in a film, it's so much easier to make a film. <laughs> it's like literally tenth the amount of time because you can create a narrative, and you can you know the whole way along as opposed to a documentary, you can't put words in people's mouths. Mm. So after that, Reef called me, and I thought it was a joke. I mean, because they were like they were working with Paul Fisher and. You know, it was reef butts, and I mean, I was the opposite yeah. of that, and and that they kept calling me, and so I never thought I would be talking to you and be sponsored to surf. Like I was never the goal. It was to be a filmmaker and a storyteller, um, and it it actually kind of tripped me out in the beginning because I was surfing in San Diego, and um, I was kind of like the local guy that surfed better than your average guy, and and 
uh, surf blacks and got some good waves down there and was just you know just surf longboarded Cardiff and to like um, and you know it was artistic and had corduroy and then all of a sudden I was sponsored and then you know every kid who like didn't win NSSA nationals or didn't get sponsored all of a sudden I was that guy and why was I that guy and what what did I do to be that guy and did I deserve to be that guy and the energy just shifted from being this like feeling like I'd go out in the water and it was kind of like this fun celebration of oh yeah you know I like a community to there was judgment there of like why am I taking up space in this surf complex mm-hmm. you know so that's probably what made me shift and go more inland and do other things is I didn't I didn't care about being that guy. I, I was grateful for the money and not having to work as much. Um, but anyway, I think I've gotten on this tangent because I think I've 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 had a successful. I mean, I've been sponsored for by Reef for five years, and I just signed for, with two more. Right, seven years being a, a paid surfer. Yeah, that's only come because of social media and media and surfers now being storytellers by default and. And that's been my niche, you know. I'm not the best surfer at all. Yeah. And I I just, I get it, you know. I go out there and I surf and I have fun and I I, I like to tell stories and um, and that's been that's been my trajectory. It's been, it's been trippy, but I've been really grateful that it's allowed me, the culmination of which has been Island Earth and allowing me to, you know, have now have a job at Guayaquil and look at more environmental films and explore concepts and different things about our culture that I'm that I'm really excited about. And I think as a surfer, surfers are outsiders in a lot of ways. You know, we've always been we're more embraced by popular culture, but I view myself as an a, a chronic outsider mm-hmm. from from being in Orange County to what I explained to, to all the way to today. And I love looking at the world from that kind of perspective and I wanna I wanna do more films, you know, that kind of have an outsider curiosity, which is why I did Island Earth. Are there any specific subject matters currently that you're looking at for a future film? Yeah, I've been obsessed with this, uh, our notions of wilderness and what that means and the conservationist movement that kind of informs wilderness is strictly defined by land devoid of man and having this these pristine areas there was an article that came out um, called The Miseducation of John Muir, and it looked at John Muir as being a con- like in in his time, you know, there's he and Thoreau and uh, a number of other people back then, like, really popularized this idea that nature is God and nature can be salvation. That was never looked at that way. Prior to that, nature was this like this um, this bramble of, of danger that needed to be um, civilized you know or needed to be uh, worked in or worked by the hand of man to be habitable and um, that they came from that they came to that from as children of the industrial revolution Muri used to run a, a factory um, and um, he had his eye poked out and you know, lost sight, and which eventually returned. Like he, it, it, the ocular fluid spilled out, but he somehow got his, his vision back, and, and that spurred him to walk across the U.S. And his accounts of native people along the way, um, and and blacks, you know, who had just 
been displaced and marginalized, I mean, and, and totally disconnected from their native traditions, he wrote very harshly of them and, and wrote, you know, that they were dirty and that they were backwards and primitive and um, the landscapes that, that Muir fell in love with were the gardens of the Miwok. But he thought that it was, you know, in Ansel Adams, see, there's, there's accounts of him t- using military um, to clear native settlements out so he could take a picture of a pristine landscape. Wow. You know, and he's got a gallery. And there was a petting zoo for Native Americans in Yosemite National Park. Wow. Native Americans, there was a bounty to kill Native Americans in California um, the year Yosemite was founded. Like... 1890? Yeah, yeah, 18... I'm not. I'm not exactly sure, but I know that you know there was, there was a bounty. Maybe it was like a decade earlier than that. That maybe it had stopped by then. But it was definitely like late to mid 1800s that there was, you know, the, the government would pay for scalps, or or the state would pay right. for. And so, I just, not knowing my heritage and um, my dad being born um, in North Dakota and adopted, and you know all these things, and I just there's a personal thing there but there's also just this idea of so we look at now and the conservation conservationist movement today assumes that man is bad for the land you got to conserve and protect us or for the land from us yet just before the industrial revolution there were all kinds of people who were making the land arguably better um if you ask Mirror better, because he haphazardly, you know, thought that that was this amazingly beautiful place. So I, and like an, an animal doesn't make its landscape worse. Right. And we, you can argue that in our most basic are animals and, and we interact with our environment and we're incredibly intelligent. So why can't we be at harmony or what, what, what areas maybe is lost in the conversation? You know, I mean, there's right. a lot. There's a lot to That's be. A good s- question. There's a lot to be said that, that yeah, we are impactful, and there's no there's no good way in the populations today, and all that. And we need to protect it. But what are the areas of the conversation that are being left on the table by not rectifying that incongruency that he had in 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 associating native peoples and what man could be with the land? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Um, I've been talking with a surfer, a well-known surfer, about. Um, a wilderness project in another part of the world, and um, I'm going to do. A, I'm doing activist films for Guayaki. I have a B Corp short documentary coming out. I have films on different music activist musicians. Um, we're doing a piece on Mark Healy. Um, so yeah, just involved in a lot of short films. Cool. And yeah, I had Healy on the podcast like a month ago. Or oh, so. cool. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Back to, uh, or I saw when I was walking through the kitchen, the New Yorker sitting there. Did you see they did an article? I think it was just this week on fan life. Oh, yeah. Somebody sent it to me. Uh, yeah. Did they? Yeah. Literally, the, the title for the article was hashtag van life. When I saw it, I was like, immediately thought of you. <laughs> um, you ob- you're talking now about wanting to settle in, and obviously you bought a home, and like wanting to do long-term surf trips in a given spot. Your 20s were spent largely living in a van that's pretty well documented through the surf media. Um, 
we don't need to talk extensively about it, but I'm just curious, like, what are your insights for anybody who's obviously the New Yorker's writing about it now? It's a trend that you were on the early cusp of. Like, give me some insights. Give me some advice for anybody looking to downsize their life and into the van. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's for everybody. Um, I'm really glad that it's now has less of a stigma than when I started doing it 11 years ago. And my mom was incredibly upset. You know, she? I was leaving in a van, thought I was going to get murdered or arrested or something and um i couldn't get a date forever you know it wasn't cool and um but yeah i don't know i mean for me it allowed me to save money on rent i traveled so much in my 20s and it was like I, I had enough apartment situations um where i you know was just not was paying rent while i was gone or would leave and then have security deposits and you know two months rent all that stuff so it, for me it was just made a lot of sense i've always worked a ton I've always worked, you know, 60, 80 hours a week. Just And vans have allowed me to do that. It's been my mobile office. I mean, that's what is almost a little confusing looking at it because it seems nomadic and, like, you can't actually bang out a 60-hour work week if you're on the road. But you're saying, obviously, it's the perfect. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not, I mean... Yeah, the, the the thing that gets the Instagram views or the things that, you know, is being popularized is the road trip and yeah. going places with your beautiful girlfriend or whatever it is. It's like, but really it's, it's like a home on wheels where you can park. For me, it was always a home on wheels where you could park and be nomadic and go, like I would hang in the local mountains in the summer when it was too hot and it was cool up there and I could get work done and hike and be outside and, um, you know, be by the coast in the fall when when the waves were good or, um, you know, go out to the deserts in the spring and, and just kind of be in the best places so that I could still be inspired and get out there and, and, and see nice things, but also just crank out a ton of work mm. and, um, and save money. You know, you, you can't own a lot of stuff when you're in a van and I get hit up, you know, two or three emails a day, messages a day and about, van advice or you know how to build out your van and stuff and i i guess it's for me it's like you go slow like really live in like a bare bones van for a while like with bed obviously you put a bed and some basic storage that likes where things don't like slide around and you hit the brakes and yeah um secure secure your stuff top big tupperware uh, boxes or rubbermaid boxes um but it's it's really like observe your patterns and and then build from there you know like my designs and my vans are 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 a result of just knowing you know what i do and prioritizing space for those and there's no one floor plan or no one no one way to do it yeah how has the transition been settling in in washington are you happy with that with the move that you made i love it you do i'm i'm a mile away from the best hiking trail I've ever done. I mean, it's got waterfalls and vistas and it's eight miles. It's a loop. I do that like three or four times a week with my dog and I live right on the river. I can walk with my, I just keep my sup under a camo tarp by the river edge and walk down with my paddle and can sup the river go. It's the Columbia. It's a mile and a half mile wide. I think it's a mile and a half wide where I live. And, um, it goes like two or three miles an hour, just slowly. So it's like a big lake and there's islands and sand beaches and private coves. And yeah, I just 
it's just amazing. It's it's I can get work done. I don't surfing is so time consuming, you know? <laughs> like trying to find waves. If you don't live in like a hub and those hubs in America have become so popular, there's so many people surfing that I get so much more creative energy by like if I'm down at my mom's where we are here in Ohio, like hiking out in the trails in the backyard or like just by being silent, you know, for surfing for me, it ended up being if I was around the places you could like surf every day. I know a lot of people or people know about what I'm up to. So it becomes kind of a party totally, and a conversation. It's a social and thing. And I got, you got to be on. Yeah. And I got to be on in front of the computer with emails and, and editing and all these different things. So for me, just this like rhythmatic breathing, moving through nature, not talking, being in like oxygenating my brain cells um, that makes me creative that gives me a lot and I, I live in a paradise for that and I'm 20 I'm, I'm just shy of 30 minutes from the Portland airport mm-hmm. so I can be anywhere in the world and I'm two hours from the coast and a variety of coast places that, you know four hours away are different zones and different swells and winds and we seasons I can get waves and jump in my van and my escape pod and you know time it with the swell and, and get my fix and come back and it's amazing um not to spill any secrets or anything but how are the waves up there do you get good waves you can get good waves it's not anything to write home about you know i mean it can get anywhere can get good you know any beach break with the combo swell and offshore winds can be amazing there's sharks is a very real thing i'm scared to death of sharks my babysitters when i was two um watched Jaws like multiple times so I've like I don't know there's like some subliminal programming that I feel like I'm going to get eaten one day or bitten one day or something. I think most humans have that programming <laughs> yeah I, some people are able to just compartmentalize it I'm, yeah I speaking have, of Healy yeah I just I don't know I'm, I'm deathly afraid so you know there's waves it's not amazing um, it's hard work it's fickle Yeah. Um, there's not like I didn't move up there for some holy grail. Sure. Um, but, you know, I can hop in a plane. I'm lucky at this point in my life. I have, I'm, I'm if I put together a trip and I'm, I have an idea for a video, I can go anywhere in the world and document it. And so I, I'm, I've got my fill of good waves and I've gotten my share of good waves in my life. So the final question I always have for everybody interviewed on the podcast is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Yeah, yesterday at the Cove and uh, C Street where you surf today. Yeah, what'd you ride? Um, I surfed an Allman Surfboards model that I rode when I took a road trip down to mainland Mexico in my van. It's dark green, really thick. It's basically just like a blank mm. that was skinned. And um, I rode at Malibu the day before. And... Um, what size? What yeah design? nine nine six or nine eight? Really wide, really beefy, big single fin, rocker throughout, um, thick nose kind of, and just kind of a bruiser and it's all dinged up, but seems stays. It has like all these mounts for these carbon fiber different camera mounts up to different angles and stuff. So it kind of like water like squirts up through the holes when you're on the board and. It's fun. They make beautiful boards. I've never ridden anything from them, but I've seen a lot. They look great. Yeah, those guys are great guys. They're just 
really good artists and uh, it's just their color palette and the boards that they they make and they're just such humble good people um i've always loved working with them cool is that who you get most of your boards from now or uh no i mean i still get it's been a while since i've gotten a board from them i used to have a model with them like they wanted to make a model and um but i i started getting long boards from ryan birch uh, and then I got a Takayama, and then uh, I just get shortboards and fishes from all different friends, and yeah, I don't know, like I'm just because I don't surf that much, like I'm really ex- excited about trying different stuff and and seeing what a board will help me with my surfing. I'm like kind of secretly obsessed with learning how to do airs and really yeah so i got like some shortboards and i i uh i was out at bird surf shed uh we did a premiere down there and bird gave me uh, a super surfboards fling it's like this it. super wide squatty five two okay i rode that the other day at a beach break and that was super fun and there's just i don't know there's, there's so many cool boards around yeah totally yeah Right on. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, thank thanks for you, taking Steve. so yeah. much time. Right on. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Stoked. Cyrus Sutton, ladies and gentlemen. IslandEarthFilm.com is the website for the film. And then, of course, SurfSplendorPodcast.com is my website, this podcast website, where you can find everything that Cyrus and I discussed, his short films, his long films, and most importantly is the link to purchase tickets for the screening that I am hosting for Island Earth. Come check it out. It'll be really cool. We'll have a little bit of a chat beforehand. Get to meet fellow Surf Splendor listeners. How cool is that? Of course, that's in Long Beach on May 15th. It's a Monday evening, 7.30. Be there or be square. And then if you can't be there and you live outside of Southern California, check out all of the screenings for the film on islandearthfilm.com. Make sure to share this show with friends. That is the way to help this show grow. And uh, we, the larger the influence is of this show, the more really cool guests that we can attract, like Cyrus Sutton. So keep sharing the show. Follow us on Instagram. Tag friends on there. That's a great way to help people find the show. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to let Benjamin Booker sing us out. And until next week, this is David Scales reminding you to get back in the ocean, get a couple of waves, and shred on. You get in the ocean too, Cyrus. Use a little bigger me up Seem like the whole damn nation's trying to think us down When your brothers die, mothers crying, TV's lying All the reasons in the world tell me shoot to me now See, we thought that we saw that he had a gun Thought that it looked like he started to run thought
Thought that it looked like it started to run 